Welcome to Watching the Watchmen, it's Entertainment Talks podcast for Watchmen on HBO and Sky Atlantic. I'm your host Matthew, joining me today, my co-host is David. How are you today? I'm very well, thanks. Good, uh, we're here today for the season finale, possibly the series finale. We'll talk about all that chatter in a minute involving Lindelof and whatnot. Uh, but season one, episode nine, see how they fly the season finale. What did you think of the ending of season one, at least? <laughs> Um, I really enjoyed it. I thought there was some nice elements in it. He managed to wrap it up pretty well, I mm, thought. Um, yeah. I thought he managed to pull everything together, you know, answered a few questions that I had, such as the thing about how are the uh, um, the, the squid attacks still going on and, you know, the did actually make a reference to the fact that it's all automated and stuff. Um, so, yeah, I... I thought they they kind of managed to pull most of the things together. There were maybe a few little bits and pieces, but overall, I think he did a really, really solid job of wrapping it up as a self-contained story. And I like the sort of slightly ambiguous end to it as well, of you didn't quite know whether it had, yeah, which way it had gone. But I think that's fine. It's sort of like um, the end of, uh, what's the Chris Nolan movie uh, that, where all the buildings bend over. Uh, oh, Inception? One. Yeah, Inception. You know, the end of Inception is very much the same sort of thing as, as it, it sort of just cuts just as you, you're about to get an answer to something and, and mm-hmm. they kind of leave it ambiguous. And I rather like that. So, yeah, um, o- overall, I think he did a really solid job with uh, bringing it to an end. Yeah, I like the episode as well. Um, one thing I will particularly say, and this isn't me giving any sort of negativity to, to the show, this wasn't quite the show I thought we were getting, but it was a very, very good show in the end. So it's like, okay, it's sort of, I mean, got used to the characters in the end and, and that sort of thing. Um, but in the end, it wasn't quite the show I thought we were going to get. But still, at the end of the day, the product that we did get, I'm very, very happy and satisfied with, which I think at the end of the day is all that kind of matters sort of thing yeah so yeah before we go in in further to the podcast i just kind of wanted to sort of say that as well um this whole ending thing with lady treo and this machine and the dr manhattan stuff reminded me of um a, a couple of different lost season finales there was the one season finale with i think it was season four where there's that bomb that goes off and it creates the um like seconds timeline like the parallel timeline this kind of reminded me of like one of them sort of finales or like um sort of the the hatch type finale when you when when you've got this you've got this object that's there and you don't quite know like all the characters can tell you okay this and this and that is going to sort of happen but at the end of the day they don't quite know how it's going to go and of course with lady true it didn't quite go of course how she wanted it to because she got crushed to death uh or at least that's what it looks like happened um so it it sort of reminded me of a couple of different lost um season finales and of course you know Damon Lindelof there's the connection there with that all that lot um but yeah because because there was a few different lost season finales that did different things that are similar to certain things that happen in this season finale and it kind of reminded me of uh some of those um but yeah overall I think that uh they they satisfied at least most of my answers I can't think of anything particularly that sticks out to where I'm like okay I desperately want to know about that uh, and of course, everybody online is joking about Lube Man and whatever. But uh, <laughs> but uh, I I think uh, we can just say that he's he's maybe he's living with Pennywise in the um, in the sewers. We don't in the know. sewers, yes, so, quite possibly. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, they've both gone down there. 
Um, but uh, yeah, I'm pretty satisfied with the with the season finale, and I think that um, for me personally, in terms of a continuation of this story, because of course we've talked before about like, okay, if season two doesn't have Lindelof, will it be an anthology with somebody else or like new uh, Watchmen characters or whatever the case may be? Um, I'm pretty satisfied with the end. This being the ending of this story, mm. uh, how do you uh, stand in terms of like? Do you need? Do you feel like you need a season two with these same characters? No, I, I think would. I mean, I, I wouldn't complain about getting a season two um, and you know continuing it with some of these characters. Uh, I I'm not entirely sure where you take it. I think mm. it works very well as a self-contained thing, which was always what he set out to do in the first place. Uh, I so I, I'm not sure. It's a dangerous proposition because it's been so good as a series. Mm. I I think it's it's dangerous to then try and you know go into that difficult second season and maybe continue this just for the sake of continuing it. And I don't think Lindelof would want to do that. He'd need to be very very convinced that he has a story that he thinks works and wants to tell, and he's going to be as good as this first season was. So I I don't know. Um, I'd be interested to see what they came up with. Mm-hmm. But I don't think you necessarily need to continue it directly on with this with the same people. Uh, you could do it as some form of anthology thing where it goes somewhere else entirely. Um, you could just leave it alone as a little self-contained uh, show. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it was always conceived as that. And I, I'm okay with that. You know, um, it's it's one of those things that I I don't want them to to do it if they're not one hundred percent certain that they can do it as well as they did this season. Yeah, because you don't kind of want to fall into the trap of, and some some shows do this by accident. Mm. The trap of like, oh, you know, second season was great, wasn't as good as the first, and I just think that with something like Watchmen that has this advantage of. Staying as it is, as a self-contained great story, you don't want to sort of like, like it, you don't want it to turn into. I'm not saying it's going to be as bad as the, like a True Detective season two, but you don't want it to be a case of that where it's like season one's amazing, critically acclaimed, everything like that, and then you try and do a season two anthology or a continuation or whatever, um, and you're like, yeah, I really really enjoy. And when you go to have conversations about Watchmen after a a lesser season two. Then you'd have the conversation about like, oh yeah, season one was really great. Season two wasn't as good. Um, and yeah. I, I just don't know that Lindelof himself would want that, given you know everything that happened with Lost and whatnot. I, d- I don't think he'd want that to to kind of happen with one of his uh, stories again. Granted, Lost is an original thing, and this is based off a book, so there's some yeah, small differences but... there. But him as a, yeah. as a showrunner doing that again, because um, when you go to any sorts of conversations about Leftovers, which is the other show, you don't hear about like, oh, season one was great, season two not as good, or season three. Um, I always hear about, um, okay, all three seasons were great, and I agree with that myself as someone who's who's finished that show. So just in terms of Lindelof himself, I don't think he'd want to have that happen again. Um, but I still think it's going to be quite a while before, <clears throat> excuse me, before anything is confirmed. So yeah, but um. Yeah, we'll we'll see what they, I guess, decide to do. So yeah, I mean, Lindelof himself has repeatedly said he has no idea what he'd do for future seasons. Yeah. Um, 
And you got to remember as well, although the Watchmen, you know, Watchmen is a much beloved comic book. It was only ever twelve issues. It wasn't like uh, some huge run. And they have done, you know, other stories. Uh, they they've done a sort of pre-Watchmen book. You know, they've DC have more recently have folded it into the wider DC universe as well, um, to, which has had a very mixed reaction, but. <laughs> It's it's one of those things that the the book that the the you know, the main book that it's based on was only ever twelve issues and it was only ever a self-contained story. So it seems kind of sensible that this TV version that that uses a lot of the book as its background is also a self-contained thing. So I, I'm okay if they if they decide they're not going to make more of it. Um, that I'm perfectly fine with. And the, there seems to be very mixed reaction about whether you do want to you know, online for people sort of saying, I'm not sure I do want a season two if they can't pull it off, you know, mm. so yeah, um, we'll see. But I mean, I'm sure HBO would be very happy if they made another one, but I, I don't want them doing it just for the sake of doing it because the first one was popular. You know, I want to, I want them to, and I think it, as well, there is a lot of love from the people that made it, you know, it's made by fans of the book, you know, Lindelof himself and a lot of the other people behind the scenes were huge huge fans of that book and i think they are very much of the same opinion of they they created it as a single thing and i you know they don't want to ruin that by making a second season that's subpar so mm-hmm. yeah yeah all just depends on if someone else has got an idea for for a second season um if it's going to be something different but uh lots of questions to be answered in terms of that so i mean we have more questions about the future of the show than we do about the the first season so yes um cool all right let's take a quick break it's a good place to be yeah yeah uh yeah we'll take a quick break come back and then we'll talk about uh some more of the watchman episode see you in a minute today's sponsor is kualu if you'd like to get started with a domain name and a website today just click on the link in the show notes and that will take you over to Koalu to get started. They also have a live support chat system that you can use which is in the bottom right hand corner. So get started with a new website and domain name today with Koalu. Hey everybody, if you would like to get the ad free versions of all of our podcasts and support entertainment talk along the way. All you need to do is head over to patreon.com forward slash entertainment talk. Sign up either as a creator or as a Patreon. There's no difference there. That's just the option for either becoming a creator now or just staying as a patron for the moment. And then all you need to do is support us at the $1 level tier. That will get you access to all of the ad-free podcasts that we've done in in the past. And get you access to all the ad-free podcasts in that month as well. So it's a great way to support us on Entertainment Talk and to get rid of the ads and get your ad-free podcasts. You can also become a patron at the $3 level tier that gets you access to ad-free podcasts and allows you to redeem a review of a TV show or a film of entirely your choice. That's one per month for either a TV show or a film review which is at the $3 level tier. As always, thank you very much for listening. Back to the show. Alright, recently on Entertainment Talk, as of just uh, today, a couple of hours ago, uh, some information released for Classic Reviews Season 3. If you're not familiar, uh, because of my age and I haven't seen properly certain uh, older um, 
films and TV shows and whatnot, uh, it's my opportunity to go back and properly watch those things and uh, tie it in with some some reviews and whatnot. And whatnot. Uh, already done two seasons, so if you're curious about uh, what the season's like and uh, what I've covered so far, you can of course search for classic reviews on the website and you should be able to find it in there. Um, but yes, the season three uh, information preview kind of thing is just a little bit of information about uh, what I'm doing with season three. Uh, but it does start next week, so look out for that, of course. And you, in the meantime, you can listen to the previous two seasons. So have a look out for those. Uh, we've got uh, what else? Have we got Let's Play Sundays. We've got uh, an episode for Call of Duty Modern Warfare. Uh, can't remember which episode that is because I've done quite a few of them, but that's another one of those. Uh, United cast Man United drew at home one one to Everton because Manchester United can't work out how to break down defenses. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, we'll see if they can do that tonight against Colchester. I'll be, I'll of course be back to talk about uh, it's the Carabao Cup quarter final, so we're almost to the final. Maybe we can win it. Maybe we won't. Who knows what might happen? You can never really properly predict sports these days. So, uh, yes, May United won, Everton won, so that was the latest in the Premier League. Uh, what else have we got? Uh, CW Superheroes for the Arrow mid-season finale, season eight, episode seven. So we got that. Uh, watching The Witcher. Um, some yeah, some big stuff for The Witcher. Uh, I'm of course going to be doing my podcast marathon this Friday in two days' time. Can you believe it? The Witcher's out in two days. That's. Uh, I know. Yeah, that's that's wild. Um, yes, I'm going to be back in two days, of course, to do my podcast marathon. If you want to know more information about that, there's three different Watcher uh, podcasts. If you search for The Witcher, um, did I say The Watcher? There's three yes. different podcasts for The Witcher, rather, uh, on the website. So if you search for The Witcher, you should be able to find those and find out more about what I've uh, covered so far. But uh, join me on Friday for the podcast marathon. Uh, that should be very interesting. Uh, a kind of sort of Christmas slasher film I went and saw, Black Christmas, wasn't very good, um, but uh, you could check out my review. I think I, yeah, I only did that as a spoiler-free thing, I think, so you can go and listen to the start of that if you want to. Um, it also was shown in a small small, uh, small screen, very limited showings, and um, yeah, just doesn't seem like it's going to be doing very well, so there's that. Uh, random Gaming Talk last week, we talked about Sony's State of Play. They revealed the Resident Evil 3 remake, uh, gave a date for Dreams and some other stuff which we talked about. Uh, we also talked about some Game Awards rumours, which are a bit old now, but we're going to be talking about the Game Awards today, later on, and we talked about some other stuff as well. Uh, also, uh, Flash mid-season finale, we've covered that, and uh, of course we're doing the Watchmen podcast. So yeah, lots of stuff happening still on entertainmenttalk.org. And on podcast platforms. Also tomorrow, um, at least for the public, uh, Star Wars Rise of Skywalker comes out. I'm going to be uh, doing a podcast for that. And something else I'm going to be doing tomorrow as well. Uh, you'll see what that is going to be tomorrow when I post that. And then of course, yes, please join me on Friday for The uh, Witcher. Plus it's also a first season, so there's you don't need to catch up with anything. You can just jump in and watch the uh, first season of that. So yeah, check it all out, entertainmenttalk.org. Uh, Lady Tru, uh shown to be the daughter of Verdi after a bit of dialogue between um, the two of them about <coughs> some sort of um, sperm things being hid behind a picture and their cleaner picked one up on the way out or something like that. Um, and she, of course, you know, that's how Trey was, was born and Adrian is... For, for a man like Adrian Verdi is quite shocked about that. Yeah. Um, and it's very interesting to see someone like that who has planned out so many things in this show of course we've seen the whole you know clone thing that he's done uh throughout the season um were you, were you surprised to see how 
I guess surprised he was when he when he found out about Lady True. He was completely I, caught off guard. So yeah, no, he was, and uh, the yes, the, I thought that was that was kind of interesting, mm-hmm. and we're playing around with timelines a, a bit here as well. Uh, the 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 idea that he had this kind of um, collection of frozen sperm behind that poster of uh, the the picture that he had, and uh, yeah, because he sort of says, "Oh, I've never been with a woman." Right, it distracts right, me from my work like, and whatnot. Yeah, yeah and, mm. and then uh, the true sort of says, ah, yes, but you do have that large vault of frozen <laughs> semen behind that picture. So, uh, yes, and she artificially inseminates herself. So, yeah, I mean, that that was... He he was quite surprised by that, as I think anybody would be if you've never had sex with anybody and suddenly somebody shows up saying they're your daughter. So, yes, yes. And even if you had... Um... But you, didn't, but, but, but you didn't think you had a daughter and someone turns up to you and says i'm your daughter uh, still yeah, gonna be quite uh, shocking but yeah yes yeah yeah uh more shocking if you haven't had sex obviously because then you wonder how the hell that yeah. happened but uh yeah really great scene with adrian and uh both us the audience and him is caught, is, uh, caught off guard so uh by the way this is from um a visit in uh, 2008 which they show slightly after that scene um yes. so yeah showing us a bit of uh, playing around with time which i thought was very interesting but yeah really enjoyed that scene with um lady tro and adrian uh she knows of verdi's squid attacks um and while it had stopped humanity from destroying itself it only put off the ine- the inevitable instead she wants verdi's help to take the powers of dr manhattan knowing that he is on europa um so that uh she can create a permanent solution which of course we see some craziness of uh later in the episode uh she tells verdi she plans to launch a satellite probe in uh to arrive in 2013 to verify this um so of course this is some of the start of just the just the complete madness of some of the end of this episode which we see yes. later on um just yeah like i said very interesting dialogue between the two of them and um very interesting to see them have a couple of different conversations about some things so um yeah, it's. Were you expect? Were you expecting her to say about like it was specifically a cleaner? Because we've never really seen with with Adrian mm-hmm. specifically, other than his clones, we'd never really seen anyone else with him, unless it was one of his clones, which I'm guessing it might have been. No, but... no, no. I mean, it was. Yeah, no. I mean, because this is all at Karnak, so yeah. this is sort of prior to him ending up on Europa. Yeah, yeah. It's. Uh, it's it's all at Karnak. She happens to be somebody that works there mm-hmm. and uh, decides, you know, that she's going to make herself pregnant with this, with with his uh, sperm. And I, yeah, I, it's uh, it's it's interesting that they've now put that they put that connection in because as I said before, you've got Lady True who's who was sort of filling that adrian verdi role of had having the kind of big idea uh of of solving the world's problems which is what verdi does in the comic book which he solves by dropping the giant squid on new york um so you know she's obviously got the you know he's sort of going well yes you know okay you did that but you didn't take it far enough and you know she's hyper intelligent as well and you're I'd always wondered what the connection was going to be between those two because clearly there was some form of connection. I didn't quite see that it was a father-daughter thing. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting that they they pulled that together uh, and it and it makes sense and it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it's quite a good start to the episode. So, 
Uh, yes. On Europa, uh, Verdi uses the horseshoe to escape, and as a uh, spacecraft lands outside the castle, did you correct me if I'm wrong? Because I might be wrong. Did you make a joke last week about like? And I agreed sort of with the joke about like, oh, we couldn't dig his way out, but it seems like that's exactly sort of what he did um, with this uh, horseshoe thing. Well, <laughs> yeah, I'm. I mean, it, th- yes, whilst I, it seemed likely he could dig his way out, if you actually think about it, he knew that castle reasonably well. It sort of makes sense that I have a pre-planned escape route of how to get out of there. I mean, this is this is maybe the one of the areas that um, I, I found kind of maybe didn't work quite as as well as they'd hoped but i still rather enjoyed it the the whole sort of the whole setup of like who put the the horseshoe there why did they put the horseshoe there the the mystery of um why the game warden was there you know all all that sort of mm-hmm. stuff um i i found that quite interesting i'm just not entirely sure whether it held together quite as well as as lintoff had hold, hoped it would but still an interesting uh point and the fact that you know he manages to to dig his way out like i say i think he's probably due to the fact that he either had that pre-planned or he he Maybe, knew yeah. you know the, the place reasonably well because i mean it, there's no way he dug that entire tunnel him you know he the, clearly he <laughs> knew that escape hatch was there but just needed some way of of opening it mm-hmm. uh yeah so he uses the horseshoe to escape as a spacecraft has landed outside because of course it has uh, the game warden tries to stop him, but Verdi stabs him with the horseshoe after catching the bullet or something. Yes. Something like that. Yeah. Um, revealing he uh, created the game warden as an adversary uh, over the last eight years. The uh, craft automatically lifts off, showing <coughs> um, that uh, Verdi has spelled out, Save me daughter. So the D was part of the uh, other word, and it was daughter, um, to be captured yeah. by Treu's, um probe. Verdi is encased in uh, gold for the um, return trip, just like how um, was it Han Solo or whatever was like sort of frozen uh, at that <laughs> one point in Star Wars. It, it sort of reminded was me of it that. Han Solo or whatever. Gosh. Uh, <laughs> um, yes. Uh, well, carbonite. Uh, carbonite Han thing. Solo, yeah, similar kind of. But yes, yes, sort of similar idea, I guess. Right. Um, yeah, kind of just reminded me. Oddly, I thought straight away of that sort of Star Wars yeah. thing when uh when that had happened but um i really think they pulled it, pulled this off quite well and this is a really nice conclusion to um adrian's europa storyline i thought it was great um yeah. and it, it kind of does also completely make sense that uh this game warden was one of his uh his clones and that had been there and him kind of telling him well the game warden sort of saying to him like did you think i was a good adversary and he was just like no not really um, <laughs> I thought it was very sort of Adrian Verdi esque. Oh yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, it, interesting that he's kind of built that himself, and uh, I guess it was a way for him to maybe sort of test himself or whatever. Um, yeah, but I mean, yeah, I really like the way this all wraps up. With yeah, um, I, I mean, I, it, I, I, as I say, I, I can't quite decide whether I whether that holds together quite as well as I, I hoped it might, but, uh, um. Yes, I did. Overall, I think I did quite like it, and mm-hmm. the the it makes sense that Verdi has sort of set up. You know, he's not really a prisoner there. He's kind of set the whole thing up 
as um you know knowing that he's going to be stuck there until that probe arrives and uh he has maybe a chance to uh, to get back once that probe shows up so uh, and again this this is something that plays with time because we did assume that this was going on around the same time as the rest of the story in actual fact it was taking place earlier so um yeah i thought that was all quite interesting uh how they they put that together and the fact that verdi had kind of not really been in a prison he'd sort of set it up himself as and it makes sense that the first one you know because he said that he was the original uh clone the Mm -hmm. game warden and it sort of makes sense that he one of the first things he did was like, well, I'm going to be stuck here for eight years at least. I'm going to be bored. I'll set one of these guys up and tell him that he has to be me, my adversary, adversary. And uh, you know, um, he's he's going to be you know. So I've got somebody to play against, uh, which again is a very verdy thing to do. So yeah, yeah. Um, I want to talk about the whole daughter thing before we kind of because the next thing i have to talk about is when trey wakes him up um her kind of saying like okay you did bother to write daughter instead of trey which you know trey is a shorter word and as we sort of saw with all the effort he was putting in with just the the save me um words to write daughter would have been quite some effort um so there's there's something more there i suppose and it it was very interesting for them to to again have that conversation, kind of almost bookending that relationship in a way, because you see the whole you know shock daughter thing at the start of the episode, and then you see here, yeah, um, like him say, you know, with the slightly earlier scene, him saying like I'm I'm not gonna call you daughter, and then him using the word daughter later on, I thought it was just a nice way to really tie that together. Well, yeah, and and the fact that you know early on he sort of says i will never call you daughter and mm-hmm. then he he and nothing says love but like writing save me daughter in a bunch of dead clone <laughs> bodies <laughs> so yes yeah. uh yeah i i thought that actually worked very well you know the mm-hmm. the fact that the the reason that she opts to go and save him is and and go and bring him back is the fact that he wrote daughter rather than just saying true you know mm-hmm. so um, so had you thought of Star Wars when uh, he was frozen? Or, not, or, not or, particularly. Whatever you want to call it. Not, not, not particularly, but I can see why that would come to mind, yes. <laughs> cool. Uh, but yeah, really great scene and really great way to kind of wrap up the um, whole prison Verdi thing. So Yes. Uh, Trey does then wake up Verdi um, with an hour left before the Millennium Clock is to activate, who um, is uh, impresses she has built her accelerator um a sphere like object floats off from it to downtown where tulsa um downtown tulsa sorry where treyu uh sets up equipment under it which of course we again we see some craziness of later on i like the conversation between verdi and this um this magazine stall person and he's like yes. oh you really look like adrian verdi and like oh wonder where wonder where he's been all this time and i was like Okay, this is one of them scenes where you're talking about a character, you don't know that character's standing right in front of you, but that character's aware that you're talking about him. Um, And sometimes I like those scenes, sometimes they're a bit like... um, It's sort of like when someone's killed someone in a show, and they're like, oh, I can't wait to get my hands on them or whatever, and then you as the audience are like, yeah, they're right in front of you. (laughs) I thought that was was pretty good. Uh, It happens in different scenarios, obviously. Uh, I mean, this is nothing to do with adrian sort of killing people is to do with okay i wonder where that guy is and he's standing right in front of you so a bit different but i think you can sort of see what i mean um 
yeah, I do like the whole sort of her waking him up and then him sort of not really knowing what's going on and being woken up and all this sort of stuff. I I thought it was pretty great. So plus, I think this Millennium Clock thing is uh, really cool. Yes, yeah. No, I I like all that stuff. The, it's interesting. The uh, the newsstand is again a callback to the comic books. Um, the there is a newsstand which features quite prominently in the uh, comic book, which is okay. Um, because there is this sub story that runs through the entire book, which is is a comic book story about um, pirates essentially. Um, and uh, it's. It's a sort of sub story that runs, so it's sort of comic book within a comic book, and it's it's a, this book that one of the kids, that uh, this kid that hangs out at the newsstand is is reading, um, and uh, it's obviously a different newsstand, but there is clearly a nod from you know to have the newsstand included cool. in the show. So it, yeah, there there is a connection back to the comic book. It is something from that they've pulled from that. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Hmm. Did you notice any? I wasn't quite keeping my eye out so much, but did you notice any specific books that were there? Maybe any nods to anything? I didn't notice anything. I, I, I didn't. I wasn't actively looking that much at the titles, but uh, no, so I didn't yeah. spot anything. Okay, because I, I was guessing there's maybe like a Watchmen book in the in the corner or something like that, but uh, possibly yeah. nothing I noticed. So, but if you guys saw anything, then uh, let us know what you saw. So, and I haven't seen I haven't seen anybody. You know, it's been two days since we've seen the episode. Uh, I haven't noticed anybody pointing anything out, and trust me, if that stuff is there, people will uh, point it out on the internet. So, um, but yeah, great. This is another yes. great little sort of um, setup scene to uh, you know to later on with uh, again the craziness that happens. So, uh, at the cavalry headquarters, several high-ranking um, politicians arrive as members of Cyclops, uh, including the elder uh, Joe Keen, as the attack on Angela's. Um, House uh, commences. Laurie discovers uh, that Looking Glass has disguised himself as one of the cavalry. Because uh, I guess he took one of those guys' masks from. Uh, yes, I would ago. So. However, however long yes. ago that was. Um, having survived the attack at his house, obviously because he's here. Um, good that he's alive. Uh, Doctor Manhattan is trapped, and Joe explains to the gathered audience about their long-term plan to revolt against uh, President Redford by arranging events like um, White Knight, but instead. Uh, discovered Manhattan's presence on Earth and changed their plans to take Manhattan's powers ever since. Um, very interesting with uh, Doctor Manhattan's character specifically because he just kind of sits there and listens to everything. But then again, I suppose from obviously the lengthy explanation from last week's episode, he knows sort of what's going to happen ahead of time or in ten years' time or whatever. Mm. Um, also interesting that because I think both of us have said last week about you know the, the machine he gets obviously teleported by um that uh that didn't kill him so um yeah but then again it's good to good that we still got to keep him around for a bit so yeah again i thought this was a good lead up to again kind of what happens later so um what do you think of the these scenes yeah i mean this is an interesting one as well because you know we we see manhattan uh you know he's he, he's trapped and the, the fact that he's not you know he's supposed to be this basically godlike character and they've mm. they've managed to trap him and it also explains why they were melting down all those batteries like way way back because they they mentioned the fact that it's it's those it's something in those batteries that they had to melt down to build the cage that that holds him so um i thought that was all quite nicely put together and the fact that he's not exactly present 
that was you know, one of the things that that cage does is throws his mind back and through back and forward through time so he's not he's not there particularly he's finding it he, you know he says i'm finding it very difficult to focus so that's sort of why you're getting these strange conversations out of him and why he's not really doing an awful lot and fighting back particularly while he's in that cage because he's finding it very difficult to under, to to focus the fact that he is actually in that cage and not like 20 years ago or you know mm. uh wherever he is so yes i thought that was interesting mm-hmm. um yes yeah, so this joe keen um guy that the guy from zoo again kind of uh talking to people again i thought was interesting and um yeah again just an interesting setup for what uh happens later so um but yeah dr manhattan's a very interesting kind of quiet sometimes too too chatty uh like, like, like last <laughs> week with uh, angela the whole egg scene obviously we'll talk about that again later but um yeah again thought it was a good build up to uh uh later things angela shows up to try and stop the event but uh outmatched um keen uh enters a booth ju- but just as the system is activated the entire area is teleported to central um Tulsa by Treyu she needed the cavalry mem- the cavalry to capture Manhattan without detecting it uh Keen is revealed to have been turned into a uh, primo primordial 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 uh ooze that spills um across the area uh, Treyu proceeds to kill the cyclops members on behalf of Will and during this, Manhattan uses the ooze to teleport Verdi, Laurie, and Looking Glass to uh, Karnak. Uh, Manhattan tells Angela she um, he did not send her away as he did not want to be alone. As Tro activates the floating spear to take Manhattan's powers, uh, Manhattan tells Angela uh, he loves her before he is destroyed uh, and power and his powers captured. So much craziness in this scene. Yeah. Um, so many <laughs> just different things happening. Uh, this is, of course, the scene I've been talking about with the whole build-up to it all. Um, yeah, I mean, it again, This is, do you remember the Lost Finale that I was talking about earlier? The one with the whole bomb thing? It's a bit not, sort of... Not specifically, no. Crazy. I mean, I know it was, a, it was a good few years ago. That was probably the 2008 finale, if I'm to roughly guess. Um for that show but yeah just reminding me of one of those kind of things where you've got this you've got this device in play which is obviously this spear clock thing and then you've got the manhattan thing and and all that uh, and obviously the the joaquin thing that's going on um because obviously in that particular episode of lost there's this bomb thing that everyone's trying to do something with so that's where you've got the kind of similarities with the the object in play i suppose i'm trying to say um yeah what do you think of uh all this madness yeah it's... so Again, this is quite nice because it wraps up uh, Will's story mm. with him finally getting to destroy Cyclops. So, it, it, I mean, not him personally, but he gets true to do it. So uh, that that's sort of wraps up with that part of that story. Um, you, uh, yeah, then then you get the the sort of um, craziness of of Manhattan seemingly being destroyed, but we can come back to that uh, mm-hmm. at uh, the end. Um, so yeah, I thought that was that was interesting, and uh, yeah, the, the, I, I like the fact that you got Verdi, Laurie, and Looking Glass te- teleported to Karnak because when in the events of the comic book as well, that's where they are when things happened last time. Laurie uh, with her her boyfriend um, Dan, who is Night Owl, and Verdi and Rorschach are all at Karnak. 
Um, and looking glasses, as, as I've said before, has has an element of Rorschach about him. Um, so I, they were the sort of appropriate characters to put in Karnak, I think, at the time. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's really nicely uh, put together. The whole sort of teleporting. I wasn't entirely sure what happened when the teleportation first happened, and then I was like, you started see, seeing people throwing up. It's like, oh, she's moved it. Yeah. So. Mm. Um, but yes, I, this was a really nice set up and put together and sort of ties together quite a lot of the bits of the story, which I thought was, was really good. Uh, wonderfully crazy. Mm-hmm. I like with um, Adrian and Lady Tro's kind of just bluntness in certain scenes, how yeah. those people ask like, hey, what do you hit? That woman asks her like, hey, what are you here to do? You here to kill us? She's like, yeah. <laughs> and she yeah. just does it. Uh, I thought that was pretty good. Because um, uh, we haven't had too many... Treu and uh, Adrian Verdi scenes but when they've been there or, or those characters have been there individually they've been there pretty great so um, yeah it's a it's a very crazy sort of great scene and really kind of like you said wraps up certain things um, I'm I, I kind of wanted to see a bit more Will in between some of the episodes that he's, he's been in because he hasn't been in the show for a couple of yeah. weeks um, but it was nice to see obviously him, him have that conversation with the Angela later on but because uh, he just seemed like a slightly I mean he was the hood of justice like that's no small yeah. kind of thing but uh, I, I expected to see a little bit more of him but I'm glad we at least get some uh, obviously in the in the season finale so yeah yeah did, did you know sort of some of the things that were happening kind of ahead of time like is there any book stuff you could kind of go off for this or were you kind of just I, I don't know where, no, where you it's, as we've said throughout the whole thing it it is very much something that doesn't directly follow any of the book's plot, but takes elements of the ideas of and very much remixes them, which is exactly what Lintoff said he was going to do. It's an incredibly mm-hmm. clever bit of writing. Um, and I, 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 I like that they've, you know, there's this sort of double cross stuff in there, which again, the, the kind of double crossing stuff is something that does happen in the book. Um, but very in very different ways um verdi effectively saving the world again from a potential huge threat and but you've also got true who's also following the kind of verdi storyline of going well yes but you didn't go far enough you know you could have actually manhattan could have solved all this stuff but rather than do that he kind of disappeared off to mars and europa you know mm-hmm. um so yeah it, it, there isn't anything specific but there are elements that uh, and ideas that came from the books and you can see how they were kind of woven into the story as well mm-hmm. um so at karnak uh verdi uses the squid rain uh, making teleportation device to set a number of frozen squid to fall uh in downtown tulsa to obliterate anything in the nearby area he describes it as sort of like a gatling gun but for yes squids interesting yes <laughs> um <laughs> uh, laurie is able to call angela and allow her and uh Bian to take cover uh while the squid while the squid rain destroys the sphere and kills tro before the transfer can be complete just want to pause there for a second i thought that the particular scene with um because the squids start falling and then tro lifts up her hand yeah and there's just this clean hole through her hand i was like wow this is the start of like Something something even crazier than what we've just seen um, with all the Manhattan Joaquin sort of stuff, and uh, it, I like how that gives you an indication of 
how, how truly dangerous this this is because there's one thing for Adrian to say like okay it's going to be a Gatling gun sort of thing you know like, okay that sounds kind of deadly but how deadly can that really be it's it's squids and then she just lifts up her hand I thought that was a great little yeah little scene so um kind of terrifying in a way but uh yeah. still pretty great uh Angela takes shelter at the movie theater where uh Will is waiting for her Will reveals uh Manhattan uh had a deal made with Trey, uh knowing this um had to happen as well and they have a bit of a conversation um yeah, were we, you as sort of struck by that hand thing as I was? <laughs> yeah, no, I I thought that was great. It it the the frozen squid rain thing was mm-hmm. quite interesting because it was one of those things that seemingly if you're under any form of cover you were fine. Um, so firstly, if you're going to build a world changing device to steal the powers of a god, don't make it out of glass. I think would be. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing I would say, because yeah. uh, had that been made out of literally anything else, uh, any form of metal or even plastic, because yeah, we see Angela running around with a, a plastic lit, you know, um, yeah, some sort of container lid, lid mm-hmm. on uh, over her head, and she's absolutely fine. So uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, had that been made out of literally anything other than glass, it wouldn't have killed her. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, Yeah. don't build your world-changing machines out of glass. That's obviously a bad idea. Um, But, yes, I mean, because that was one of the things I was looking at going, well, yeah, okay, but how how are they going to get out of this? This is so deadly. And it's actually they're not that deadly. It's just the particular thing that she's using Mm -hmm. to do it is made out of a very flimsy material. So, um, yeah, I thought that worked actually really well. And yeah, the shot of, of it going through her hand, uh, rather, I mean, you didn't see it. You just heard a kind of noise and then she holds her hand up and it's got a big hole in it. Uh, I, yeah, I, I thought that was great. That all worked really, really well. And, you know, isn't the sort of devastating event that Verdi did last time, obviously, because you're not killing millions of people. It's, it's relatively targeted for that. So, uh, yeah, mm. overall works really well, I thought. Yeah, it's a great scene. Um, anything you want to say about this Will Angela stuff? I just thought that was a nice little yeah, no, the, kind of that, conversation between two. That was a nice, a nice sort of rounding things off because of course Will's looking after the children, and uh, yeah, that mm. that all seemed to work reasonably well. It was a nice little kind of rounding off, and you know Manhattan kind of knowing where this was going to go as well, and know this was going to happen. The interesting thing is, you know, we talk about the uh, true taking his powers and the transfer happening where are his powers now because you know he's we have the thing with the egg and that conversation you know where we're coming to the end and the conversation they had earlier where he talks about being able to give a certain amount of his power away um but clearly that's not all his power so is it possible that Manhattan is still out there somewhere in the ether and just needs to find a way of reconstituting himself, which he's done before, you know, in the comic books when he uh, is in, when John is initially destroyed, he is um, sort of disappears and disintegrates you know, when he's first turned into Manhattan and he actually pulls himself back together and, and becomes the big blue thing that we now know as Dr. Manhattan. So, I do wonder if, although it seemingly looks like he's destroyed, whether he is actually still out there somewhere. Um, hmm. Because, 
the, the whole point of this was not to destroy his power, it was to transfer it from one vessel, you know, out of the form that he was in, into another vessel. And that clearly didn't happen. So when the mm. machine's destroyed, was he just dispersed into the atmosphere? In which case, he could possibly come back. Yeah, I, my my guess was that some of that power was in the egg for Angela and the rest did get destroyed. But now that you kind of mentioned what you just did, I'm not quite sure. Yeah. Um, I think that that's I think that's maybe one of the parts of the episode that's left up to your interpretation. But uh, I, I, don't, I don't really know apart from that. Um, there, there's a lot of there's some different possibilities I think, but um, I I kind of like the idea you just said, the whole yeah. that uh, you know it might he might be out there somewhere. Um, but uh, I I don't know. So, but I'm I'm satisfied with the answer that I got that some of the power yeah. is left in in the egg probably. So yeah, uh, as a way to kind of pass the torch in a way I suppose. Yes. So. Uh, Verdi offers Laurie and Looking Glass the uh, Night Owl airship to return to society. Laurie attempts to take Verdi in uh, with Looking Glass having the uh, video of proof of Verdi behind the squid attack. Verdi attempts to talk his way out of it, but uh, Looking Glass knocks him out. I do like in this scene, um, Adrian's kind of like, oh, that's a good joke, Laurie. So I like, okay, look what, look what we've just gone through and you're still thinking yeah, yeah. about like arresting me. Um, and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's a good joke sort of thing. Uh, again, a very kind of Adrian thing to say and you can kind of see how serious Laurie is about it. Um, so I, I liked how that kind of worked out as well. Uh, and of course, Looking Glass being there was uh, was very, very cool. So Yeah, made. and again, this also comes back to the book because hmm. in the original uh it's it is uh, Rorschach who confronts um, Verdi about it and threatens to go and tell the world of what what Verdi had done, and uh, it, Doctor Manhattan actually kills him, sort of disintegrates him. So uh, oh. we, so that that is where they take it in the books, and of course Manhattan's not there in this case. Laurie and uh, Night Owl actually kind of goes well in that particular instance in the original novel Laurie and Night Owl decide that they're going to let Verdi get away with it because he has potentially stopped the world you know blowing itself up from nuclear war which is is what they were on the verge of so they decide to keep quiet and you know as that conversation goes Laurie is a very older, very different person, very much older, different person now. So when she comes back at Verdi and says, oh, he, he says, I'm going to arrest you. And he's like, look, we've been through this already, basically, which is at the end of the last book. And they just, and she decides to leave him alone. Hmm. Um, so that is sort of a callback for that. And looking glass kind of getting revenge for Rorschach uh, as well in a sort of twisted kind of way. So yeah, I, I like that whole setup. And it was nice to see Archie again. And again, it's another explanation of why we saw that owl ship right at the very beginning in the opening episode. And we see the original uh, Archie, which is the original Night Owl owl ship in this one. And uh, Verdi makes, you know, does mention the fact that the law enforcement had taken the designs of, the, of Archie to create their own airships. So all that is explained, which is great. Cool. Nice. Um, yeah, I thought it was a great scene between between the three of them, particularly Laurie's comment about like um, you're you're under arrest and then like, Oh you're having you're having a laugh, I thought it was Yeah, good. yeah. So uh Angela offers Will a room at her house. 
uh, as she takes her children back home as she cleans up a mess of eggs from earlier in the night and then we flash back to yeah she recalls that that manhattan told her once that he could transfer um his powers to someone else through um an organic medium finding an unbroken egg because of course we get the flashback to the whole uh, argument from last week's episode yes. angela goes to her pool eats the egg and prepares to walk on on water uh across the pool um the screen cutting to black as a foot touches the water and that is the end of the episode um yeah i like how this i really do like how this ends and again mm. it's kind of up to your interpretation like okay did it work did it not i'd like to think that it did um just because okay why else would that egg be sort of set up there um because of course with manhattan he knows what's going to happen past present and future uh we saw that in previous episode um and yeah i, I like it as a in a weird way, I've not really seen the past be torched on a uh, torch be passed on a show through an egg, so that's quite <laughs> new. But uh, yeah, I, I like it nonetheless, and it's it's very Watchmen. So yeah, yeah I, I like this as a sort of okay. Manhattan's gone. We don't know quite where he's gone, but he's gone at the moment. Um, and the egg thing was set up through previous episode, and she kind of realizes pool scene, eat the egg, uh, and hopefully that's the passing of the torch. Um, yeah, I like it as a pretty much a wrap up for that relationship. It, yeah, at least for the moment, and like I said, the passing of the torch. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I I really like this. I I mean, mm. it certainly heavily implies that he did do that, and they have the conversation. You know, when he's walking on the uh, pool last episode, he does specifically say this is important for later. Um, mm, yeah, and and then they have the conversation about uh, the breaking the eggs, and then that comes back up again. Um, was it, it? It was Will that mentions it when they're having that conversation of said, you know, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs, uh, which sort of reminds her of it, and then she goes back and finds the eggs. So, I I rather think that yes, he, she has the power has been transferred to her, but I like the fact that they do leave it ambiguous at the end. I think that's a nice way of, of ending it. Um, as I said, I suspect that's only a portion of Manhattan's power and we don't know whether he did genuinely get destroyed or whether he's just dispersed in some way because it didn't, the transfer didn't take shape. Uh, but yeah, there was also a nice little scene where the, one of the kids realizes that, um, Angela actually has this secret superhero identity as well when she's kind of bundling them into yeah. the car at the back yeah. of the shop. So, um, yeah, I, I like that as well. Uh, yeah, overall, a really nice way of wrapping everything up. And uh, it, it it works so well as a self-contained thing, I think, um, mm -hmm. which brings us back to the earlier conversation about do you have a second season? But I, I'm perfectly happy if this is where it ends and it stays as, as one thing. Obviously, I'd be very happy to see more Watchmen as well, but as, mm -hmm. as a self-contained thing, it works extremely well. So, Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd fully agree with you. So there we go. That's uh, season one of... Um... Lindelof's Watchmen, of course. Uh, we do have some emails, so let's move on to those. One of them is discussing certain things for Season 2. Uh, by the way, if you want to send in any questions, comments, thoughts, ideas, get in contact with Entertainment Talk, or submit feedback or whatever for the other shows, because this isn't the only thing that we do. 
uh, MatthewInEntertainmentTalk.org, Twitter E Talk UK. There's the contact page and information in your show notes. So get involved, Peter. If uh, so, if a Watchmen season two happens, um, what would you want or envision it to be? That's one question. Uh, what characters would you want to show up? Uh, in terms of the characters thing, the only character that I know from Watchmen that wasn't in this season is I think the comedian played by was it played by Jeffrey Dean Morgan. In the, uh, yeah. the film, that's the only other character I can think of that I don't know. So that's my answer to that. Yes, the difficulty with that is it would have to be a, a, a historical thing okay. because the entire book is based on the premise of the comedian being killed right at the beginning of it. Oh. So, <laughs> uh, so, so the entire original novel that that is the the comedian being killed is the catalyst for all the events that follow on right. in the Watchmen book so you couldn't have the comedian show up unless you did it as something which was some form of prequel historical thing um, I would like an explanation of what happened to Dan uh, who was Night Owl because okay. he's still alive at the end of the book and he's not with Laurie in this series so as I said I remember talking uh, earlier on there was a very small hint uh, where uh, the the uh, cancelman character um, uh, Joe Keane makes a comment about the something about freeing that night owl, freeing your that night bird from prison or something, or that okay. bird from prison. There there was a comment earlier on, so I do wonder if maybe he got arrested for something. But uh, and, and I. I uh, and it, it could have been taken either way, and that could be me, me reading something into it. But I, I would like, out of all the characters out of this, I would happily watch an entire season of Laurie because I love her character. I think she's yeah. brilliant. Yeah. Uh, and I would maybe like to see some explanation following that of what happened to Night Owl as well because he is one of the other characters who potentially could be still around. Um uh, as to what the overall story would be, I have no idea. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, those those I would. That's a character that I would like to follow. I think. Mm-hmm. In terms of um, what I would envision season two to be, uh, as far as the season two of this story goes, I don't know because like we've kind of agreed. Yeah. Uh, we think this is kind of wrapped up. In terms of the anthology thing, like you said, the whole night owl thing and maybe comedian, th- whatever they could do with those characters. Um, is the only other thing I could think of. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know what, what else you could necessarily do. How much can you... I'm going to use Walking Dead as a comparison because it's the only comic book I've probably fully sort of read or whatever. And of course with um, you know the Walking Dead show, they've made original characters and whatnot. You know, Daryl being one of the, the main big ones. Um, how much could you get away with using previous comic book characters like maybe the Night Owl in some way and making original characters could you do that in some way um if if it's not if it's a prequel if it's a sequel yeah you could I mean you could maybe envisage something which is uh I mean because they made original characters like Lube Man uh they made original (laughs) characters for this so if it's something that is is moving forward from this then yes you could do that uh, as well as introducing the few re- you know, remaining characters. I think Night Owl is the obvious one that's missing, but mm-hmm. you could maybe do something with that. Um, I, But if it's obviously, if it's a historical thing, I think it's trickier to do that because you're then starting to mess around with established history, which Lintoff was very, very 
careful about not doing you know and not treading yeah. on things that he's that not altering anything which is established in the book so yeah you could um the and there are prequel books as well you know they have written prequel books i just if you're going to do that it's not going to be as weird you, you know it's going to be more straight superhero stuff so it makes it a very very different show mm-hmm. so i thought of sort of feel if you are going to do something it probably needs to move forward rather than you know be something set further back in the watchman world um but it, yeah i don't know i would like to say laurie is a, is certainly a character i would very happily follow again because i thought that was that was really good and there is of course a period of time in between the uh the uh, the events of this and the events of the comic book you know so mm-hmm. yeah that you could maybe fill in some of the gap in that and and you know maybe you have a show which is is laurie chasing down you know join when she first joins the fbi how she joins the fbi chasing down those those other heroes but again it's a or you know other vigilantes um so you could do something based around that, but it would be a very different show and not as weird and strange as this, which is what makes it so great. So I, I don't know whether you want to do that either. Hmm. It's tricky. Yeah. Uh, Hannah says, so as it looks, Angela has got Dr. Manhattan's powers. That's what it seems like. And that's the answer yes. that I'm going to at least take. What could this mean for season two? Um, again, it depends on whether you're talking anthology, prequel, sequel to season one or whatever. Um, obviously there's a hint of like, okay, if we make a season two, could, could we get an Angela who has Dr. Manhattan's powers? Um, kind of thing um and that's maybe one of the other avenues you could go down but again that would have to then be it would uh, yeah have to be a sequel to this which would be a season two sequel which would mean you pretty much would have to bring everybody else who's still alive back um yeah and uh again i think you you've pretty much finished that um i I agree there's maybe some story there you could tell with angela having dr manhattan's powers i don't really know what that is though um, no, and it's and it's to what extent she got Doctor Manhattan's powers as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, you, it, it's it might not be everything. Is it the sort of being able to see her entire life across time? Is it her? You know, can she create things? Is it just she can walk on water? I mean, yeah, we don't know to what extent she had the powers, and I, yeah, I, I'm not sure whether that's the route i want to go down of kind of continuing to follow angela um i i like the fact that's kind of left ambiguous i so i don't know um i i struggle to see where they maybe would go with the second season so i mm-hmm. you know if you're going to try and can carry on this story directly because the other thing is of course the major threat is gone right now so yeah uh, yeah. And there wasn't like any setup for anything else. Uh, it's very much a self-contained thing. So, you know, and I think just following Angela around as a version of Dr. Manhattan, uh, I'm not sure how interesting that would be. So I don't yeah. know. I wonder if there's a way, because a couple of little plot lines or character arcs that we've just sort of mentioned. Um, I wonder if there's a way, instead of doing like an 8, 9, 10 episode season, if you did like a little, maybe not like a cinematic release film, but some sort of HBO Max film mm. for like, a, here's, here's a two hour Watchmen film of Angela with Dr. Manhattan's powers, or here's, I don't know, some, something else like that. 
I wonder if there's room to, to tell because then you don't have to do okay what are we going to do for nine hours worth of television you could just do a, a bit of an El Camino style thing where you don't have ten episodes yeah, of yeah. the El Camino story you just have here's a two hour little uh, sequel thing of what, what this little storyline is so maybe there's room to do that so yes that might be one way of doing it certainly hmm. Yeah, and like like they've kind of said with HBO Max, they might get uh, an opportunity to do that. So, but anyway, the season's yeah. only ended this week, and nobody, I, I don't know if Warner Brothers or HBO or Lindelof knows what they're going to do with this yet. So it seems because there's been a lot of conversation about that. Okay, will he return? Won't he? Season two or what or whatever. Um, seems like it's going to be a little while before we hear anything about it. Which you know, it's fine. Take your time if you need to figure out what to do next. So, um. Yeah, in the meantime, of course, we don't have a season two, so we won't be back next year, I assume, with Watchmen or whatever. Uh, that's very unlikely. Um, may- maybe something tw- in 2021 or 22, who knows. So we will see what yeah. happens. Um, so, yeah, that's our coverage of the Watchmen. David, thank you for joining me for these nine weeks of, or ten weeks, actually, the preview um, of podcasts. Yes, you're very welcome. We have got one more thing to add into this as well, of course. Yes, we do have an interview with the. Uh, David did an interview on uh, this week's Geek Town Radio with the cinematographer for uh, a couple of the different episodes. The notable one, of course, the uh, sixth episode, the black and white one, which I gave a lot of praise to for a particular yes. shot in the episode. Um, I'm gonna, once I've done all my outro, outro and whatnot, uh, you'll start to hear the start of that interview, and uh, that will take you out of the podcast. Um, yeah, so you'll hear that in a little bit once I've done the outro. But in the meantime, of course, you can find David on geektown.co.uk. The last Geek Town radio for the year has gone out, which has me on it discussing, um, again, the TV film, TV and film news, and of course, the highlights for the next couple of weeks on TV. So for some of the uh, Christmas schedules and whatnot. Um, so yeah, if you're curious about, you know, air dates and that sort of thing, of course, you can listen to that. And you can also still go over to geektown.co.uk to find out about the individual shows or whatever you you want to do over there um yeah geek town radio is of course on itunes and podcast services so please go over and listen to it on those um if you want to find out more stuff from us we still got uh, a few things to do of course for the rest of the year uh, entertainmenttalk.org uh, and like i said we got the best of um best and worst of podcasts on sunday we've got two more football matches to cover we'll see how those go um and then of course we got the witcher on friday so that's going to be a big thing and then of course star wars tomorrow so let's not forget about uh the end of the star wars uh trilogy and the end of the skywalker saga so that's going to be some big stuff as well so please join us for all that on entertainmenttalk.org uh if you want to support the podcast support entertainment talk of course we're on patreon please check out the one dollar and three dollar level tiers uh, Amazon affiliate, Amazon affiliate link. If you're still doing your Christmas shopping or whatever, or you're pre- treating yourself, or whatever the case may be, you can use that. We'll get a small cut of what you spend. It won't cost you extra. iTunes feeds, please rate, review, and subscribe to those. Word of mouth, of course, over the Christmas period. Please tell your friends, family, people that you know about the website and your iTunes feeds. Share them on Facebook, retweet them on Twitter, and if you're allowed to, put them in different Facebook groups. Uh, what's the other thing? Yeah, video games, of course. If you want to watch us play different video games, me and David stream on Twitch. Robert streams on Mixer. Uh, I've started doing some Call of Duty face cam uh, streams as well, so look out for some of those. Uh, those will all be put on the on YouTube and on the website, so have a look out for those if you've missed them live or whatever the case may be. Um, yeah, that's it for us. Um, you're going to hear the interview in a minute with David and the cinematographer, so please enjoy that and then enjoy and then join us for the everything else we got going on for the rest of the year. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next time. Goodbye. Bye.
Hello, it's Dave again. As Matt mentioned at the end of the show, I recently had the chance to interview one of the cinematographers for Watchmen. They have quite a lot of cinematographers on Watchmen, but uh, Greg Middleton was one of the main cinematographers. Uh, he was responsible for four episodes of the show, including episode two, episode four, episode six, and episode eight. So that includes the brilliant black and white episode, This Extraordinary Being, and the episode where we saw probably the most of Dr. Manhattan, A God Walks Into A Bar. I sat down and had a chat with him and we talked quite extensively about the work on this extraordinary being and shooting in black and white and the process behind that, how they came to the idea of shooting in black and white. And we also talk about uh, the problems we're dealing with a giant blue god character as well in uh, the final episode. Really interesting guy to talk to. Uh, this interview has already gone out on Geek Town Radio, which of course you can get from geektown.co.uk and various podcast services. But we thought we'd put it on here as well well because obviously you're Watchmen fans so you guys would appreciate it here's the interview with the cinematographer Greg Middleton from Watchmen if you want any more behind the scenes interviews for various different tv shows you can of course find them at geektown.co.uk here's the interview with Greg it's lovely to have you on to chat I'm such a huge fan of Watchmen oh great it's been phenomenal as as somebody who was a huge fan of the books I think Damien Lintoff's done an incredible job doing what he said which was remixing things i just yeah, it, i think incredible. there was a lot of people that were dubious when he you know he preemptively you know <laughs> yeah the world that he was going to attempt this because you know i think you know he can be a he can be a divisive figure as far as uh, yes. writing goes but i must say in some ways i mean if you look back at his other work you can see the influence that this book has had on him and the, and the rest of his work uh, yeah. earlier and i think he's it's it's become like the perfect marriage of both his loves and his talents and with this material it's, it's created something really unique and you know it's one of these like lightning of all things where i think it's uh, at this time in this way with him has created something you know that's really going to be unique and it's going to last a long time which is really exciting yeah it was just a really interesting approach to it of doing a sort of sequel to the book but without treading on anything that's already in it and then also remixing elements out of the book into something entirely new there are kind of touch points that you can spot if you know the novel that mm -hmm. come up again but he has done them in very different ways it's it's just an incredibly clever bit of writing by the time this goes out the finale will have gone out so very much looking forward to you know hoping he manages to land it and, <laughs> and everything ties yeah, up. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, yeah, I can't I can't speak about the finale obviously because there yes. are no spoilers there, and I only shot a very small portion of it, so uh, I read it obviously, but I, I, I'm not going to comment on yeah, absolutely portion. But but what I found was so interesting was about the what you're just discussing about the remixing of it all is you know when we were discussing the scripts at one point in prep and the, where things were going to go, uh, you know, because we didn't have all the scripts in advance, unlike. You know, something like Thrones where they map the thing out completely. Damon just li does like to sort of adjust on the fly and, you know, as he's completing the sort of puzzle of the clock that he's making, like it's it's sort of a constant state of adjustment as he's writing the, the season. So we were discussing the various scenes coming up and the scene in eight between Ozymandias and Dr. Manhattan is very much the kind of conversation you can easily have imagined happening at some point after the novel, after yeah. the graphic novel. It's completely like 
that which is the jumping off point, which of a lot of the story comes from this conversation, just like the same way that Dr. Manhattan eventually might get bored making life. Mm. As he said, he's going to go make life somewhere else because he is still a human being, even though he can't relate to human beings and want to try and fall in love again. And yeah. so those two, those two jumping off points were completely logical and made a lot of sense. If you're a big fan of the graphic novel, that that would be where this entire story was generated from, right? Which you see in episode eight. Oh, that's where it all did start. I was so impressed with that. I was like, oh, that's a conversation I want to see. I can't wait. To, um, I was lucky enough to get to shoot that conversation and film that. But it was uh, it's, 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 so, it's an interesting and so completely perfect spot on position that those characters would be in, you know, 10 or 15 years after the graphic novel. Yeah, it, it works so, so well and has an amazing punny title. That uh, yeah. episode as well. <laughs> God walks into Avar, which is uh, just yeah. brilliant. Angela just picked that name because, well, we met in a bar, so we'll call ourselves a bar. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just great. They obviously picked their name, so it's not like... <laughs> yeah, it's brilliant. You are a co-cinematographer on this. Actually, there's totally there'll be five different cinematographers' yeah. hands on the series. So uh, Andre Parekh uh, shot the pilot, which we did reshoot a chunk of once we started going, and I shot episodes two, four, six, and eight. Javier Grobet shot episodes three, five, and seven. And uh, Alex Disanoff shot episode nine, which is on next week. And also he did um, some of the, the uh, Jeremy Irons work around the catapult, which was shot in Atlanta, where his show was based. Right. And then all of this, all the stuff in all the stuff in the castle in, in Jeremy Irons Manor at the castle and around the grounds of the castle, close to the castle, was all shot in Wales. That was shot way early in pre-production. And that was shot by Chris Seeger, who's a British cameraman. Right. Yes. So it's all shot early. Like they wrote all those scenes before the rest of the scripts were ready. And they were shooting that while we were in pre-production. So the whole, you know, us developing the look of the show and starting when I began pre-production for episode two, which we just started to discuss the various concepts. And at the same time, I was talking to Chris on Skype uh, about lens choices because we're like, well, we're, here's what we're talking about this week is where we might be going with this. But he's like, well, I'm shooting next week, so I got to pick. So it's like, <laughs> and we haven't quite decided where we're going to go yet, but they're going to shoot all theirs. And, and his world does have its own sort of language anyways, which was the whole yeah. point. It was supposed to be, you know, the blonde man scenes are like, you know, a merchant eye reproduction. It'll be sort of, you're suddenly in another period film. You don't understand where you are and <laughs> which worked out quite well. So it actually worked out well. So in the end, it was me and Javier alternating on the season when I began up until the end there. Right. Yeah. That's a lot of people to, to juggle, to try and make sure that you're shooting in exactly the same way. So they kind of all match, I guess. Yeah, it is. And it's something that, um, I mean, I had a lot of, I had quite a bit of that experience on Game of Thrones for three seasons and, yeah and when i joined i was like the 15th cinematographer to join that <laughs> series right i mean there's been because they would they would pair you up with the director on that show so there'd be often five cinematographers per season right you know so if you knew them yeah so that's the way which is a very different way most tv series uh when i worked on the killing for example where i met um nicole cassell the director that i worked with on watchmen on episodes two and eight that series i shot every episode so i was you know prepping on the weekends with a new director and and then you have a real obviously a, a big hand and like story continuity on game of thrones you're paired with the director it, it works unlike any other show where they keep you with your director and they basically block shoot and schedule the entire season so that way if they're going to go to a city in spain for example everything in that city will be shot you know in the same two weeks for the entire season so in which case right. there may be scenes from four episodes in there two or three days each and they'll be one after the other so i will go in with my director and our first ad and i'll shoot for three days and then i will leave the crew will stay there the next director dp will go in and shoot their scene for three or four days and i'll 
go back to Belfast and prep. And so your days aren't consecutive and you end up with this very, very stretched out schedule where you're both prepping and shooting, you know, sort of continuously sprinkled throughout three or four months, which is very different. But what it does do is it allows for a lot of cinematographers to overlap because we're obviously sharing sets. We're also telling a 10 hour story and a season of Game of Thrones. So we do, we do talk a lot about, well, I'm going to do this in this scene and you've got this scene coming up in the same set. You know, we want to not do the same thing. We want to make sure we leave our, just even technically, I want to leave the set in good shape for my compatriot coming after me sure. uh, or, or share ideas about how to accomplish certain looks. And while still, you know, shooting our own story and shooting what we, how we think is best for our own two episodes. So it's, you know, there's more, I've been lucky to have opportunities to overlap with other cinematographers before. So in this case, I kind of knew that was the case. And as I started episode two in prep, you know, we, we wanted to make some adjustments and some refinements of like developed, like what, what should the look of the show be? Cause I had a strong work relationship with Nicole and, and she really empowered me and sort of Damon, those guys like, look, here's what we like about the pilot. Here's what we're uncertain of. Here's what we're going to re- be redoing anyways, because now we recast a couple of characters and we built a, a couple of big sets that were not did not exist during the pilot. Like the police station set was not, right. you know, did not exist. So a lot of stuff was going to get redone. It was a chance also then whatever we're going to be adjusting to put that stuff, those styles into the pilot as well. And the big thing was we tackled it to kind of like a film. Like, well, here we have a big piece of reference, like the, as Damon would call it, the Old Testament, which is the graphic novel. <laughs> and we have a bunch of things we like from the pilot that worked that we think is good ideas and other things we're not too sure about let's develop and how we go from there. So it became like a fact finding mission of, you know, pulling what those resources were that we liked, uh, all the, you know, still images from films and, and parts of the show that we liked a lot. And a lot of concepts from the graphic novel that could translate over visually because not all of them will or will make sense and piece them together and start to build a little Bible of like, okay, let's some suggestions of do's and don'ts and, and things to avoid and things to strive for uh, and build it out like that. And then we sort of applied all that to our pilot reshoots and episode two and sort of built from there. And then after uh, heavy joined us a few weeks after I've been prepping, he was like, okay, great. I get this idea. And then he would, you know, take it further and the crew would get, get used to working that way. And so you sort of, it's a, it becomes a team thing where we sort of all sort of approach it together. Yeah. Cause the great thing, great thing about that is working with real brilliant people. I mean, heavy is a brilliant cinematographer. He likes be- beautifully. It's nice to have someone else with you to be able to discuss these concepts with and do tests and, and, and things like that. You know, it's, it's, you were often kind of, you know, alone on our Island as a cinematographer, you're kind of by yourself <laughs> yeah. with your director and your film which is also kind of great, but in something as moving as quickly as this project, especially when you get the script and you realize, oh, this script has got like, you know, science fiction new places. It's got giant vivariums. It's got period pieces. It's got, it's got the war in 19, you know, like, and you realize I have so many of these different things to juggle. It's a bit much to, to do in the amount of time. I mean, prepping this project was more like prepping a really, really large complex movie. And I only had five or six weeks prep of things. And we started episode two and, and we were trying to look down the line of the various things we have to do. I knew, I mean, in episode two, I've got the war, I've got the German war office, I've got, I've got the ladies with the typewriters and you've got all this at the beginning. And then suddenly you're in, you know, then you're in the bakery at night and we want to have a film noir conversation. And we're going to bring in ideas like split diopters to, to put like the pill bottle big in the foreground and to link him to the pills and things right. like that. There's a lot of sort of thinking about these things in advance. And that was super exciting to do. So, just, so the short answer is you sort of start when you're the, you know, I'm the only person there. I'm doing my best to sort of start the process off 
off and come up with a few concepts and then have you will add to them and then we'll become a conversation after time we shoot a scene and we like and don't like and then halfway through that we'll look at some stuff together once the cuts start coming in and adjust from there and keep developing as we go yeah yeah and you mentioned the book there is being used as reference on set were you a fan of the book beforehand or was it something yeah, you ended I, up binging through i was i was i wasn't a fan like when it, when it first came out it was more it was around the time of the, that um the film 2009 came out i was like oh i should look at this thing because i there was a couple right. of, i liked a little bit of comics when i was young but i never got into this one and then i when i reading this one i was really blown away by just the structure of it and it's a really complex piece of writing yeah it's also very of the 80s people forget the kind of amount of content i mean there's you know there's the idea of a woman falling up with a rapist and stuff is a maybe a bit of a trope today which right, would be really yeah, yeah. you know i don't think that would fly in a script uh, these days but but it's also you know it's a uh, as a piece of writing, as a commentary of the time of the eighties and where comics were, you know, it's a pretty pointed critique, right? And he was, yeah. was, he was deliberately trying to make a piece of work that was like, if these people were real people, what would they really be like? Yeah. A lot of them would be very dysfunctional and it would be, you know, they're all filled with massive contradictions. I mean, Rorschach, people remember him fondly, but the guy is pretty psychotic and oh, he's yeah, also, yeah. he says no compromise. He compromises all the time, except <laughs> the things that he doesn't want to compromise on. And, and there's a fill with these people filled with contradictions are really interesting. And, and the structure of that story, especially the one where, where Dr. Manhattan experiences time, which is what you know Damon echoed so beautifully in episode eight. Mm. It's a really brilliantly written thing as he realized his problem with connection with people because he is experiencing time in this nonlinear fashion. Yes. That's a really clever, a difficult concept to bring across in any way. And it came across really well in this format of a graphic novel. It was a really, it was kind of a brilliant way to show that. So I was a fan of it from that perspective. And then because it was Damon's big references, like the, it is the history of our show. It's, it's, it's the real history of our yeah. world and show that he's creating, both for all the details and then also for all the little Easter eggs they want to put in visually, silhouettes of people on the wall, various visual details. Yeah. We, we went into Karnak at the end. Nick Hood, it was a brilliant onset dresser, he's a huge fan of the comic. He would always be looking for the little details he can make sure he gets in the frame and, and part of our visual development the thing we were talking about earlier was to try and compose carefully and to compose with objects and people in ways to reinforce or subvert what's going on in the scene and the point of view and just not to be haphazard to use the frame and try and pepper it with information yeah. and using split doctor stuff like that and so he'd be looking for opportunities like that all the time and so when we're doing even like coming into Karnak in 8 when Dr. Madden comes in and we, he walks down the long hall like we're discussing how to do that it's like well, it would be great if he had to walk for a bit because then he'll walk past all this stuff and we'll get to see <laughs> you know the latitude of things and also we, there's easter eggs for all the stuff from you know Karnak and the graphic novel to put in there including like there's a sort of old like kind of Spartan Roman helmet you know on the ground we kind of go by he's walking up to Manhattan and that's big in the foreground and one of the comic pieces right so then he'll be he'll have the graphic novel out he'll have it all on his iPad try to put the right things in the right place so he can <laughs> echo that for people that are really big fans and then you know it grounds it in the history of the, of, of the world too so yeah absolutely it was great I was so happy I was like that's Karnak when it came on screen <laughs> yeah the one episode we, we really need to talk about I think is This Extraordinary Being which yeah. was a phenomenal bit of TV I do love that episode. Was it always going to be shot in black and white, that episode, or was that a decision that was made later on? It was made in prep. We mm -hmm. had a little bit of a break after Christmas. We took a brief hiatus because they were a bit behind in sort of post and they wanted some more time to, again, sort of adjust from a script and story and, you know, everything standpoint. So we had a little bit of a longer break, which allowed us a bit more time to ponder this episode because both me and Christian, the production designer, we were like in desperate fear of this episode because if you, on paper, you realize, oh, I got how much of it's going to be in period in New York. Yeah. And we don't have an unlimited budget. You know, we had enough money to sort of, but it was very tricky. And so uh, like, where do you do 
period New York in Atlanta. It's like, oh, God, Super Bowl's coming up. Can't be anywhere in the city, and there's no streets that are dressed <laughs> appropriately. So we went to Macon, Georgia, which is south of it. And uh, just before the Christmas break, Christian and I had gone to Stephen, who was in the middle of just doing pickups for um, episode three, and he was and he was hopeful of possibly shooting in actual New York, possibly hmm. if we could if we could swing it. But Christian and I knew that was probably not going to happen, and he was like, look, we just want to go down to Macon, and we're going to go come up with a couple of plans for what streets we can use and what you know try and put together a map of what we, what's shootable and how we could fit into our things i knew what we we're going to be into long continuous takes which means you can't use the usual tricks of just like hide you know shooting the same wall four times right, right to sort yeah. of give yourself more period background if you if the camera's wandering around with a wide lens you're going to see a lot so you have to very carefully pick where you're going to shoot to get the most out of it and not shoot yourself in the foot so we went down before christmas christian and i to pick some stuff made a couple of proposals and then we had a little bit of longer time over the holiday break to consider those because I knew this was episode was going to be one is going to be very special just because of the content of it. And also it was going to be an incredible challenge to pull off in the way that we were sort of tasked to do it initially because the, the concept of sort of more of a flowing camera was, you know, definitely in the intent and the script with the idea of this journey of the taking the pills would be uh, like a bit of a first person combination of Birdman and uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is another yeah. great reference, right? Because at that point, his mind's coming apart in that film. And so you can't quite tell what's real and like the doorways in the middle of the street and things like that or in the yes. script. It's like, yeah, obviously you don't quite know where, you know, which reality you're in and realities are overlapping and, and that, you know, took a lot of figuring out. So so for me, that it was about the ex getting the execution right was you know so key to keeping the the journey of the episode once it gets going as compelling as possible. And in that regard, you know, I, I sort of pitched to production as a look in the end because of the type of these shots. And we were, I was very lucky that our Joe Aberti, one of our main production producers, he had worked on other shows that had done sort of single take scenes before. And so he knew what was involved. He was like, you, it's hard to describe just the level of pre preparation you have to have for some of those things. You, you can't just make them up on the day because there's so much choreography involved. Yeah. So I pitched like, look, we really do have to go down to make into our street scenes and bring two stand-ins and you know, bring, I have the scripts and I'll, we'll do them all with my viewfinder on my phone and we should kind of need to cut them together and make sure our transitions work and give ourselves a few options so we can look at them and then, then we can play the episode scenes together and see if they really work. Cause then I have to also budget this too. I can't just, you know, propose shots that were totally impossible because you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, we have to fit into the budget of the, how much street can we light, you know, how many cars can we have, all that type of thing. And so the process of prepping the episode was basically trying to shoot the whole episode twice, doing the entire thing, you know, on the viewfinder with our stand-ins, uh, Joel and London, both being off book and, you know, doing all the scenes and then <laughs> discovering, okay, what's the way, what, what part of the scene, like, what can we not see and what do we not mind, not mind seeing? Like if the camera's moving around somebody, when can they be off camera? When, what line can you miss part of? And the scene in the, in the bar, for example, which is like the second scene after he gets his uh, badge pinned on him on the stage. Right. That's a four and a half minute scene almost initially. And there's a couple of cuts, a cut in it now, there's a couple of flash cuts to the pilot, which weren't in the original shoot. And that whole thing we did is one continuous shot which starts at the bar goes around the table twice you know we do a, a handoff to regina and back and then in the background the kkk member with the woman shows up and gets shot that's all they have to enter and you know off camera and do all that and then the piano has to roll in behind us so we can go off that and go to the piano and also go into the piano away which is exactly the way we'll come off the piano on the street so we can do the seamless transition and that's all choreographed and what they're acting 
with background. I mean, that, that took us almost all day to do that, but it took us also three and a half hours in the location to pick the location and yeah. see where the table would go. Is there enough room for the camera? Will this sort of choreography generally work? We shot it a few times with London and Joel to figure out the timing of like what type of move, when would we do the switch? And maybe we move, I think we moved the switch in the scene once briefly or where we were going to be for it. And that takes a lot of time and consideration. And we did that for all of those scenes and worked them all out. Like the whole opening in with the getting the badge on him. We had to be able to see June in the front row back to him, get the timing right. So he's just being passed over by the commander of the yeah. local precinct and then have Sam battle then arrive and pin the badge on him. I mean, just even deciding where he should sit, where we would be, how many rows he can see, you know, where the crane will go, like doing all that. We had to do all that in advance for everything. So the preparation process process was really involved, but it did give us the proof of concept and then cut them together. And then Stephen could show that to Damon and say, look, this is going to work. We can do it this way. I think we can, we're going to make it all work somehow. And we'll just keep pick, go, keep going through each scene and figure out how to do mostly this way. And if, if the scenes are strong enough and then the acting can keep up with it, and our cast were ex- extraordinary, like they yeah. could do these longer takes and be, be so spot on. Jovan was incredible. And the lady who played June is also amazing that they really worked. And so you could start to feel, okay, this is going to work now. Now it's like, okay, now we have to get into these really difficult scenes. Like the one with the projector on the wall, that goes into the movie, Yeah, which I was determined to do live. So we did a real, we had a, a video projector standing in for film projector, but all that's in camera. <laughs> so, which was because we didn't want to do it as a visual effect. It would feel yeah. a cheat, you know, it should feel like it's real. It should feel like the room dims and somebody's projectors on the wall. And then you can tell if it's, kind of been faked. You wouldn't see the light play on the actors the same way. But that took, again, incredible choreography with a small crane and and them all getting the lines right and like you know, holding up the newspaper so you can see the, the headline. And anyway, I'm just rambling now, but it was a very <laughs> long pre-production process to sort of proof the concept. And then we could eventually just tackle one at a time. Okay, now how do we do this one? Like, how do we come off the screen and go into the mirror and reveal that he's in, you know, the white, you know, makeup around his eyes? Yeah. And then we have to go into the mirror and reveal it's Regina. Then we have to to go from that into the noose knot and then from that onto a rooftop and then we have like it just you just you know you, just, you tackle each one separately and figure out well what's the way to do it and then just build accordingly yeah I mean when you're shooting something like that are you visualizing it in black and white or is that sort of something you're changing over later on because there are little color elements in that as well so yeah and that, the little colored things are something I pitch strongly for especially with the, the red content being so aligned with Cyclops like I wanted the red light of the little recording booth blinking yeah to be red his, his folder for cyclops is red mesmerism book would be red because i thought that'd be a nice way to just also like from a story standpoint to just hammer home the connection to these things for people because it is a lot of information being thrown at them yeah the basic process for shooting any show or film the basic concept is you know in the old days with film you know you'd make a work print and you'd watch your dailies the next day right and mm-hmm. then so on set it would be you know i'd be judging the photography by my eye and my you know light meters and everything else and then we would watch our dailies the next day but now with you know digital cameras we've had a few years now we have monitors that people can watch and the monitors are very good and their monitors are you know large and it's not really fair to have a director or anyone else in the film look at a monitor and say don't worry it's not gonna look anything like that later 
and have them stare at it all day and have them stare at it in post because what will happen is they will fall in love with whatever it is. Yeah. Because that's just how, that's just how the human brain works. We just get used to something. And if you, you can tell them, you know what, it's going to be all pink later. Don't look at the blue image. It doesn't make any <laughs> sense to them. Yeah. And it shouldn't. And it's so the onus becomes then, you know, my goal in, you know, and when I'm lighting something and photographing something is I want to create the ability to have something on set that's very close to what the final image is going to be or what I would, what I anticipated it's going to be. Part of that is not doing color grading on set, but sometimes building of what's called a viewing LUT. Uh, a LUT is like a lookup table, which is basically a contrast curve you would put on the log signal or the flatter signal that the cameras record right. to give you the, the contrast you want. And it's sort of like in some ways, it's like kind of picking a film stock. It's not right. It's not changing the signal being recorded, but it's changing the sort of what it's turning that very flat looking negative image, if you want to call it that way, on the, what's being recorded into something that has contrast and, and balance and saturation and all the things you would associate with the final image. Right. And so you can tweak that to some degree on set with a little bit of color tweaking, but I, I don't believe in doing, you know, extensive post-production while shooting my attention needs to be on the camera and you know the actors and my director and sure. and the lighting and so i like to build sort of a viewing light that would give me an approximation of what i want and we did that for the overall watchman show and we did that on game of thrones as well after i joined we made a couple of ones that worked really well and and so for this one it's like once we got into oh it's going to be black and white as we were struggling to figure out where we could land the episode in the palettes we'd already established we already had flashback things we wanted to be different than that but not so different you know it was like we're kind of running out of room of where to go <laughs> and damon sensed the same thing and he was eventually he was like yeah we're just what if we just do it totally black and white at which point me and christian because at this point we're we're in we're middle of pre-production and they're already building and painting things and the one thing about black and white is we rely on color separation a lot sometimes in both set design and costume design sure however if you if you put a grayscale version of that just take the saturation all the way down on your tv or your monitor you'll suddenly see that like two things that can be radically different colors can be exactly the same in black and white of course yeah so you have this you have a very tricky situation sometimes where like a pale green and a pale gray or a pale blue and, a, and suddenly everything is the same tone and you're like uh-oh and also i have to protect the fact that like well what if they decide they don't like it black and white i can't also assume that it's going to stay this way for sure right because it's television and things can change and you know ideas can change later so i can't make it so it's a disaster if they ever put color back into it yeah so it was, a, it was a tricky balancing act to find it but i basically then went back to the same process where Christian and I quickly looked looked at everything we'd painted and, and did a quick test in black and white to make sure we didn't have any agrarious errors of things being too much the same shade. And we managed to, you know, fix June's apartment a little bit and we made a few adjustments to the brightness of walls. And then I built a black and white viewing lot uh, as much like a, a deep, old, um, slower black and white film stock as I could. Right. I did a bunch of tests with the stuff on set and kind of color charts, things like that, that I would normally do. I mean, from a sort of, it's a bit technical, but like one thing I'll do when I'm doing um, setting up an initial camera test for this type of work is I'll, you know, we use a face. Uh, there'll be like a, a color chart, which is a bunch of chip colors on it, a grayscale. And then I'll put other things in the shot as well, like a black reference, something that's totally black, like a black tube that has no light in it. Something very white, something that's peaked out that will blow out. And various things in the background, like sort of highlights or lights in the lens. Things, all the things you might encounter in the environment you're going to be yeah. in the world in. So we would take like a piece of wall, which has a eggshell or semi gloss kind of like old paint you know tobacco texture to it and we all mm. use that in the background or when we're doing initial watchman tests you know a piece of concrete for the police station things like that right and then you could sort of start making those adjustments like okay well here's what a so black and white film would look like here's like a emulation of a you know a, like a fuji film stock or a film stock with more contrast and you start playing around with what that will be and then you've got a good sampling of things in front of you you're not just 
making those decisions based on a single item, like not only on the skin tone, you know, you're, yeah. you're going to have a lot of things in this together. So, so I basically did a microcosm of that process again with black and white and came up with something that I was, you know, happy with, with, uh, Todd Bachner, our, um, final colorist. And so I flew to LA to do, do from Atlanta to sit with him and work on both the looks of the show and also this black and white thing. And we came up with something that was pretty great. I think it was pretty intense blacks, which I wanted like, you know, when you're negative would be like, you know, what you're exposing and then your print is the thing you're looking at later. Yeah. You know, a, co- a common thing would be to sometimes overexpose your negative slightly just to maintain enough detail in the darker areas. That way sure. you get flexibility as you're grading later. And, you know, digital images are similar. Uh, once you get to the point where the reason that log images look very gray is because once there's no information, no luminance information, you can't really change the color of something because right. there needs to be kind of gray in it for the adjustment to take hold and move it. So what you run into trouble if you have very, very dark images that have no information, if you try and keep changing the color, what happens is the black goes one way and the rest of the image goes something else because there's no, there's no information in there anymore. So you get a very strange effect. And knowing this was going to be a sort of a, a black and white film noir with a lot of heavy contrast, uh, uh, making a LUT that way is a way for me to also protect the amount of information I have in the blacks to make sure I have enough room to really, you know, when I'm grading, if I want to really massage what's going on in there in a subtle way, I've got a lot of information. So that's a bit technical, but <laughs> it's part of the way that then when I'm shooting it, we're seeing hopefully ideally very close to what we have. And if, even, even just the, you know, the, the spit out of the avid based on just what we had on set looks very close to the final episode now. So yeah, yeah, it, it is a beautiful looking episode and just a wonderful, wonderful bit of TV, that episode, the one that has just recently gone out and God walks into a bar. <laughs> that's the first time we really see Dr. Manhattan. We've seen little bits of it but it's it's the sort of main first time we've properly seen him how is it dealing with basically a giant blue man from your (laughs) point of view because that's very difficult i imagine to handle when you've got a blue man that glows on set and you're having to light and deal with that yeah it's also something that we you know i think well like anything so we sort of break down the process and like you know part of being my role as cinematographer is to you know you work with the filmmakers and the directors of like what their intent is. And sometimes you're also helping them articulate maybe what they don't quite know how to articulate yet. In this case, Damon was for sure did not want, you know, and, and, and also in TV, for example, like the, you know, in the, in the end, the showrunner is sort of my ultimate director because they will post sure. all the episodes. They will have the final cut and they will be doing the last rewrite on their words in the final edit. So for bigger questions always involve them for me because they're the ultimate arbiter of things. I mean, mm-hmm. when I was on the killing with uh, Venus Sud, you know, I could go to her and say, Hey, I've got this idea for something for Peter Sarsgaard's character. Should I be saving this for later? You know, knowing the story is going maybe this way and she could say oh yes good idea save that for later in this case damon did not want a he was determined not to have a completely cg dr manhattan right because he was very afraid of the lack of control and like maybe being pinched for money mm-hmm. and having a bad cg person he really wanted to have an actor he wanted to have someone that could look good in makeup that could perform that felt like they were in the real world it wasn't going to be an always glowing manhattan mm-hmm. and he also didn't know how much he was going to glow and, and how long and when so we did a, a lot of extensive tests with yaya in the makeup, both with sculpting in terms of shadow and the and all the tone, like how bright a blue, and and then I, I lit him in various scenarios he might be in, like you know day interior, night interior, like had him walk through our living room set of the A bar house and the like, and we use that to guide the makeup choices and 
and everything else. And I knew there might be some subtle like skin fixing and stuff later, which could be maybe a, like a very subtle digital manipulation is something that they could do, which I think they, and they did in the end for some things. And I also knew that they would probably decide, you know, in post a bit, like as he's, you know, becoming more cognizant of his time when he's woken up and ate, like the whole idea is he's discombobulated because he's coming out of a position with no memory. So yeah. he shouldn't really be just, he shouldn't snap back to how he was before he was Cal. And in the script, you know, he's very uh, distinctly named Cal Hatton, I think is how we called him in the script. Right. Because he's still partially Cal because he hasn't fully rebooted to his former self for the first, you know, 15, yeah. 20 minutes. So he wanted to really be like Cal and really feel that is Cal and to have him, the actor be him as he was when he was a um, normal uh, Calvin when he took the form initially. And I I knew they would change, maybe change their mind of when the blue glow was happening. So off camera, when you knew he would glow when he first appeared, I would create some interactive light for that. And then later on, there were times that they decided they added stuff later, which I didn't offer any interactive light and because we, I didn't know what we were going to do it then. So there were, there's right. some CG lighting uh, in some of those scenes. Okay. But it's a lot, based, a lot of testing. Yeah. You wouldn't know that some of that was CG lighting or what you, it's very difficult to tell, but it's, it comes off brilliantly. I think, I think it, it pulls together yeah. incredibly well. I added light under the pool for him to make sure. So the, the, the yeah, pool would glow and the, the yeah. she would glow. So. Yeah. It's wonderfully, wonderfully shot. I've, I mean, it is, it has been a beautiful series and I've really loved it. Thanks so much. We're coming up to, you needed to get off. So I'll give you the uh, last two questions that we always ask everybody okay. the first one is what tv shows are you watching at the moment oh that's a good question um i guess the issue for me is once i'm i'm in production i have to catch up on things so i'm quite yeah. behind at a lot of things uh, what am i watching recently i just started uh, i just started his dark materials oh yes a bit of rick and morty season four which is <laughs> hilarious yeah. um i just started watching undone on amazon right okay which is actually a bit of a sort of a oddly dr manhattan time jump or space jump oh there's something else that i'm trying to think what I just finished. Oh, I also just finished the, the Crown season three, which I absolutely adored, which is beautifully done. Yeah, I love that show. series from yeah. start to frame. And my friend Fabian worked on it. He shot episode nine, which is like an absolute masterpiece as well. And it's a really, I just love how Peter Morgan writes. I'm so impressed with the structure of his scenes and the way um, characters interact and the subtlety. It's really lovely. Yeah, it's, it's a brilliant series. And despite the fact they've changed the entire cast, you really don't notice it just feels like the same show. It's great. Yeah, after like an hour, you're like, I'm in. I'm, uh, yeah. I understand the character. And last question would be, if you had the opportunity to work on any TV show, past, present, or future, which show would it be? Oh boy, um, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've worked on a lot of films too, so I'm, I'm kind of also keen to get back into films. I mean, I'm more attracted to the type of s story than like a particular title necessarily. It's always exciting to be involved with something that has a bit of iconography to it, to you know, to be sort of adapt. So, which is why Watchmen was so exciting. But uh, I don't have any future TV shows. I mean, The Crown would be a dream to work on that for sure because I. I just I love that show so much and I felt the same way about Thrones when I got onto that of course it's more like like I love the films of Denis Villeneuve you know and the fellow Montrealer but right, yeah, yeah. I'm more I'm more interested in the, the type of story and sort of more ethical, ethical dilemma and the way to get into something yeah. and the sort of efficiency of you know good visual storytelling to tell that it's really not genre specific necessarily so TV has some of that a lot of TV now also is getting into stretching stories out over many many episodes sometimes too much and what I really appreciate about Damon's work on Watchmen was the show moves at a very brisk clip, you know, and it, yeah. it keeps you guessing and there's lots of turns and twists. And I think that's a, a beautiful thing about it. 
and yeah. keeps me on my toes. Every script is like, holy crap, it's a whole other movie to go. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, Denny Villeneuve has got a Dune TV series coming to go along with his Dune movie, so, you know. Yes, it's, it's possible. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward. I think he's a great choice for Dune. I think he's, uh, yeah. I mean, he's a really unique talent, the way he sort of tunes into the behavior of people, you know, and, his, and, his, and use that. They're, they're the things that drive the story in a lot of things, what he's interested in the story. And I think that's really, really key. You know, it's not like you're being told things. You're sort of witnessing someone's behavior through a situation and that is part of what the story is so anything else uh, coming up that you uh, can talk about i know that usually isn't the case because i haven't got any big ndas i can worry about i just um there's a film i shot last year which should be coming out shortly shortly called american woman directed by a woman named uh, semi cellis who is one of the writers on mad men cool cool and uh it yeah it's a really interesting film starring actually hong chow this who plays lady true in this series as actually one of the leads in it and it's uh it's loosely based on the patty Hearst kidnapping it's a really good drama so oh, cool. I'm very proud of that film. Cool. I have to keep an eye out for that. I'm very much looking forward to the last episode as well. I, I'm very much looking forward to see how he wraps it up. So uh, great. It's been lovely to talk to you. Hopefully I could talk to you for ages, but uh, hopefully we can get you back on at some point in the future. It would be great. Yeah, I'd be very happy to. I'm uh, happy to chat about this stuff anytime. It's uh, always fun to help me illuminate the craft and stuff. And uh, thank you for so much for the interest in our show and interest in uh, what we do. No problem. If uh, ho- Hopefully we get another season of Watchmen. I know he's been a bit kind of umming and ahhing about it, but we'll see. <laughs> See. It's lovely to talk to you. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye, David. Bye.